0: Well, good morning, Grace Bible Fellowship. I am uh, excited to be here. This is first sermon as, as your pastor, and, and uh, it's pretty exciting for me. And so with my first words, I want to point you to the thing that should be the first priority in our lives and really in our church, Grace Bible Fellowship. And when you think about it, what would you say is the number one priority of a local church? just so want you to think about that for a little bit. What's the number one priority of a local church? What should we focus on? right? What should we be doing? And maybe just as importantly, how should we do it? Another way to ask this question is, what is the mission of the church? What is our mission as Grace Bible Fellowship? What what are we trying to do here? What what is our goal? Why why do we come here? What are we trying to accomplish? And these questions are are really so important because we got to know what we're trying to do. We got to know what we should be all about. And there's a lot of confusion in the church at large on this issue. Many, many church leaders aren't exactly even sure what we're supposed to be doing or what what they're supposed to be doing. Many churches are unclear about the mission of the church. Many are not sure, even if they if they know what their mission is, many of them aren't sure how to fulfill it. Or even worse, the mission of many churches isn't even biblical at all. And I don't want us to wonder what we're supposed to be doing. The Lord doesn't want us to wonder about this issue. He has explicitly and directly told us what we should focus on. In all four Gospels, the resurrected Lord commissions His disciples to glorify God by bringing the Gospel to the world. Our mission is to participate with God in His worldwide work of building the church. Jesus is building His church, and we are invited, even commanded, to participate with Him in this task. And so with my first words at Grace Bible Fellowship, I want to point you to Jesus' last words. And Jesus' last words upon the earth show us what is to be our first priority. Let me say it again this way. Our first priority should be to glorify God by obeying the last words of Jesus Christ. And to do this, we're going to look at the Great Commission as recorded in the book of Acts. I called this message, For the King. Because Jesus is our King, and in this text we're going to see our responsibility, our purpose, our mission, what we are called to do for the King in the last words of the King. And so please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, and let's begin by reading the text. Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 1, I'm preaching out of the ESV this morning. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now we're going to break this text up into five sections and we're going to call it Five Considerations as We Work for the King. So if you're taking notes this morning, Five Considerations as We Work for the King. And they're all going to go like this. I'll give you the outline now and then I'll give it to you again as we go. But they're all going to go like this. Consider, number one, the certainty of the message. Number two, consider the commandment to wait. The third consideration is the chronology of the kingdom. Number four, consider the commission to the world. And then number five, consider the coming of the Lord. And so the certainty of our message, the commandment to wait, the chronology of the kingdom, the commission to the world, and the coming of the Lord. Five considerations as we work (coughs) for the king as a local church and as individuals. And so number one, consider the certainty of our message. And we see this in verses 1 to 3. The certainty of our message. Luke begins there in verse 1 by mentioning the first account that he composed. This first account or this first book is known as the book of Luke. Luke is kind of volume 1 of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And Acts is volume Number two, that was really all that could fit on a scroll in those days. And so the, the book is really two, one book, but split into two scrolls. Volume one, volume two, Luke and Acts, both written by the same author. And, 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 and volume two, Acts is what Jesus did and taught through his disciples. So volume one, what Jesus began to do and teach. And then volume two, what Jesus did through his disciples and apostles. In Luke chapter one, Luke told Theophilus that he wrote, having followed all things closely for some time. And then verse 4 adds that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so Luke wrote so that we would have certainty about the things that Theophilus has been taught. And so Luke investigated everything carefully from the beginning so that we might know the exact truth about the things that we've been taught. Plus, what Luke recorded is God breathed scripture, and so we have a kind of double certainty here: the human author's careful investigation and the divine author's superintention. Luke ends the, the the there's a bit of an overlap here between Luke and Acts. Luke ends with the ascension of Christ into heaven, and our text as well, verse eleven ends with Jesus being taken up into heaven, according to verse two, Acts one and verse two, look at it there. The first book covered until the day when he was taken up after he had given commandments through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now we're going to look at the commands that Jesus gave when we get to verse 8, but right now we just want to focus on the certainty that we have. And Luke followed everything from the beginning and he wrote by the Holy Spirit. And now in verse 3 we see another component of our certainty. Look what it says in verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so Jesus presented himself alive to his disciples after his suffering. And in the book of Luke, we see clearly that Jesus' suffering is everything leading up to and including his death. Jesus died and rose again. Jesus' suffering was an execution by the Roman government. Turn to Luke chapter 22. I want to just trace Jesus' suffering according to the first account. And we're going to start here in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 in verse 52 Jesus was arrested by the chief priests and others of the and, and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come against him. And in verse 54, they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. Look at verse 63, Luke 22:63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, "Prophesy! Who is it that struck you?" And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Then Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin in the morning, and they said in verse 67, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it from our from his own lips. Jesus was brought before Pilate in 23 verses 1 to 7. And he admits in verse 3 that he is the king of the Jews. And he was brought before Herod in verses 8 to 11. Look at chapter 23 verse 11. And Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, they sent him back to Pilate. In verse 13 and following, he was brought before Pilate again, and Pilate wanted to let Jesus go, but the crowd pressured him to crucify Jesus. And so in Luke 23 and verse 20, uh, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no guilt in him deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. In verses 26 to 32 Simon carried Jesus's cross and then in verse 33 when they came to the place that is called the skull there they crucified him and the criminals one on his right and one on his left they crucified Jesus Christ a, a Roman execution and in verse 46 look at it there 2346 then Jesus calling out with a loud voice he's on the cross said father Into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus breathed his last. Jesus died on that cross. And in verse 50 and following, Jesus was buried. But miracle of miracles, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. They they could not find his body because he was alive. Luke had followed all of these things closely for some time. He interviewed eyewitnesses of the crucifixion. He interviewed eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And he concluded in his careful investigation that Jesus truly rose from the grave. And Luke's account isn't some kind of legend that was written hundreds of years later. Luke and Acts were written while the eyewitnesses were still alive. And so Jesus rose from the dead, and he presented himself alive to his apostles and his disciples. Now go back to to, to Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, if you're not already there. (coughs) Again, Acts 1-3, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days in speaking about the kingdom of God. And so after Jesus died, he appears alive to his disciples by many proofs. The New American Standard translates that many convincing proofs. And I just want to take you to one of those convincing proofs that's recorded in Scripture. I want you to go now to John chapter 20. Just a few pages back in your Bible. John chapter 20. We're going to start there in verse 19 one of the proofs of Jesus' resurrection, on the evening of that day, I'm in John chapter 20, verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when He had said this, He showed them His hands and His side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Skip down to verse 24 there. And yet believed. Here's a convincing proof that convinced Thomas who said he would never believe. And yet Thomas now seeing Jesus alive comes to believe. And we, brothers and sisters, are among those who have not seen and yet have believed. We have the, the testimony of the eyewitnesses recorded in the New Testament for us. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can know that this is a true word of God. And that same Holy Spirit who inspired the Scripture, the eyewitness accounts that we have, that same Holy Spirit works in our lives to convince us of the truth of Scripture. And so listen now then, our faith is based on historical facts, and especially the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then you add to that the confirmation of the Holy Spirit who transforms our lives through the Word of God, and what we have is certainty. We have confidence that our message is true. The gospel truth that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried and that He rose the third day, these truths are sure. And we can stake our lives, we can stake our eternal lives on these truths. And so we can summarize the certainty of our message with, with one word maybe, and that is the word confidence. So consider the confidence that we have as we work for the King. Secondly, I want you to consider the commandment to wait in our text. We're back in Acts chapter 1. Number two, consider the commandment to wait. This is in verses 4 and 5. In verse 2, we saw that Jesus had given commandments to the apostles, and one of those commandments was to wait. Look, look at verse 4 there. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. They were to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. They they were going to be baptized in, or you can translate that with or by, they were going to be baptized in, with or by the Holy Spirit. The the promise of the Father which they heard from Jesus was that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now the Old Testament had promised in multiple places of a day when God would pour out His Spirit, His Holy Spirit, on His people. For example, Isaiah 32, in verse 9, you don't have to turn there. God says to to rise up in that passage. And then in verse 12, He tells them to beat their breasts. And the the idea there is a, a symbol of grief and anguish. And they were to do that, according to Isaiah 32, 15, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. And so God's people were to to be in anguish and grief until this day when the Spirit came upon them from on high. Isaiah 44 and verse 3, God says, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. Ezekiel as well talks about this. He talks about a day when Yahweh would give the people a new heart and a new spirit in chapter 11. And in chapter 36, maybe a passage you know quite well, the the new Spirit is identified as the Holy Spirit. And so listen to Ezekiel 36.25. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Again, God is speaking here. Ezekiel 36.25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And, I, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and put a new Spirit within you, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put My Spirit within you. This is the, the Holy Spirit. I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and to be careful to obey My rules. Now the other place where the promise of the Father is mentioned is in Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, Peter quoted from Joel 2.28 to explain the coming of the Spirit. And so this pouring out of the Spirit, or this baptism in the Spirit, this is called uh, being clothed with power from on high. In Luke 24.49, really a parallel passage to our text, Jesus says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Or, in look at verse 8 from our text, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses. And so the coming of the Spirit is power. The coming of the Spirit is power to be a witness for Jesus Christ. The coming of the Spirit is power to live according to God's Word. The coming of the Spirit is power to live a holy life that glorifies God. And in those early days of the church, the coming of the Spirit also meant power to prophesy, power to heal the sick, power to do certain miracles, power that that authenticated the Word of God so that we would be sure that those who were speaking for God were really His representatives. And through the book of Acts, there's... There's actually a number of distinct comings of the Holy Spirit when as the Word goes from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then beyond to the Gentiles, the the Spirit comes a a number of times just as an authentication of the work as it grows. But what I want you to get here today is that the, the commandment to wait tells us a lot about the apostles and our need. See, they were not to begin. They were not to do anything until the Spirit came. They could not be witnesses without the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught them that He would come to them and that, that He would come to them in the person of the Holy Spirit and then they would bear much fruit. And so the commandment to wait shows us that success in our work for the King is dependent on the aid of the Holy Spirit. We can do nothing for the King without the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, are you ready for some good news? And it's so important that we grasp this and believe this. And, and here it is, that if you are in Christ, you have been baptized in, with, and by the Holy Spirit. All genuine believers have the Holy Spirit. There's no need for us to wait. We must recognize our dependence on the Spirit, but, but we aren't waiting for anything. And I want to just show you this from two scriptures. First, let's go to Romans chapter eight, Romans chapter eight, verse nine. You, however, Paul says to the Romans, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So here, Peter says, Paul says that you are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, if you don't have the Spirit of God, Paul says you are not a Christian. You don't belong to Him. Everyone who belongs to Christ has the Spirit of God and is in the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God dwells in them. Now let's go to one more here. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, a really important passage in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 There it says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. We were all baptized by the Spirit. In the one Spirit, that's talking about the Holy Spirit. We were all baptized into one body. That body is the body of Christ, the church. And so we are all baptized by the Spirit. We all... And in the context, of we all, is Paul, his associates, and even the Corinthian church, the Corinthian church with all of its struggles, Paul says, was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so if you belong to the body of Christ, that is, if you are saved, you have been baptized, really, literally immersed in the Holy Spirit. You have been immersed into Christ's body The church. And so we have the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is in you, and you are in the Spirit. Even we could go to scriptures and show that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all live in us, and we live in them if we're truly saved. And what that means for us is that there's nothing that we're to wait for. We're not to wait. There was a a time early in my Christian life where I I read about this, and I read through the book of Acts, and I didn't know uh, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen or Romans eight nine and I decided that I was just going to sit around and do nothing until I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. I wasn't even going to go to a Bible study or anything, and I just kind of sat there stubbornly, hoping something amazing would happen. But but that's not what we're called to do. We have the Holy Spirit, and now we're called to be obedient to what Jesus tells us to do in this passage. Now. We can be filled with the Spirit, and, and that's a difference between being baptized in the Spirit and being filled. But even there, to be filled with the Spirit means just to yield to the Spirit. It means to obey. It means to allow the Spirit to control you by obeying moment by moment. And we're even commanded to be being filled with the Spirit. It, it, the, the, we're not waiting on the Spirit to fill us. He, if we could say it this way, he's really waiting for us. We're commanded to be filled. That that shows that God is willing and ready to fill us with the Spirit at any time. And so we're already baptized with the Spirit, and He's ready to fill us and to work through us the moment that we yield to His control. And what this means, beloved, is that we have what we need as we work for the King. We have everything that we need in this work. Jesus promised in Matthew 28, verse 20, we'll look at that in a little bit, that He would be with us as we seek to make disciples, that He would be with us until the end of the age. And so we have the Spirit of God, and God has promised to work through us and through His Word. And so the commandment to wait shows us the help that we have as we work for the King, the the help that we have. Number three then, consider the chronology of the kingdom. We're back in Acts chapter 1. Consider the chronology of the kingdom in verses 6 and 7. According to verse 3, while Jesus was presenting himself alive by many proofs, he was also speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And during this 40-day period, he was not only teaching them about the kingdom, but he was also opening their minds to understand the Scripture. Listen to Luke twenty four forty four, a, a parallel passage. He said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And all of Jesus' teaching during this time and his opening of their minds left them expecting a literal fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of a restored national Israel reigning with the Messiah as king. And look at what they ask then, as they're as they kind of expecting this literal fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. They ask him, when they had come together, verse 6, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority they want to know the chronology of the kingdom. When is this going to happen, Lord? When are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? When will you fulfill all that is written in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms? Everything is going to be fulfilled. This is their logic. Everything is going to be fulfilled. It isn't fulfilled yet. When is this going to happen, Lord? And it's only natural for them to ask this because many of those Old Testament passages that speak about the pouring out of the Spirit also speak About the restoration of national Israel. And they think if the Spirit of God is coming, then the kingdom is coming as well. Now notice that Jesus doesn't correct them on this. Luke doesn't uh correct this either. He he you know, he doesn't say they should have known that the kingdom promises are are fulfilled in Christ and that there will be no kingdom. Now, when we get into the book of Matthew, we're gonna have some time to talk about the kingdom. But most often, just if you're kind of going, what is this thing about the kingdom? Most often when you see kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God in Scripture, you should probably think of the future millennial kingdom, the, the thousand year reign of Christ on earth that's described in Revelation chapter 20, where it's revealed that before the eternal state, Christ is going to reign on the earth for a thousand years, and then after that we enter into the heavenly state. And it's in that thousand year period when all the promises of the Old Testament are going to be fulfilled through Jesus the King. And the the apostles are are going, Lord, when is this thing going to begin? And Jesus replies, the timing is not for you to know. The timing is not for you to know. Christ could return at any time, and we don't know when. And when is not for us to know. Our focus then is to work for the king until he returns to establish the kingdom. And we don't know how much time we have. Jesus could return at any time. We could die at any time. We don't know how much time we have, but what we do know is that what we're to be about uh, until the king returns. We, we we know what we're to do, uh, what our business should be for the king in our limited amount of time. And so when we consider the chronology of the kingdom, what we see then is the time that we have as we work for the king. And so we've seen our... Our confidence, our our, our certainty—we've seen our. I'm losing my outline right now. We see the the uh, power that we have. We see the help that we have from the Holy Spirit. We see the time that we have. Then, as we uh, think about the chronology of the kingdom, now number four. We want to ask, what is it that we're to do in the time that we have? And that's consider then number four: the commission to the world. This is. In verse 8, I, I want to read verse 7 though. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And here's what the apostles, and, and really by extension, here's what we as well are to do in our limited amount of time by the power of the Holy Spirit and with unshakable confidence, we are to be witnesses to and for Jesus Christ. We're to testify to the world who Jesus is and what He has done. And this witness is described in all four Gospels as well as in other parallel passages. And this thing is known as the Great Commission. The Great Commission. Jesus is clear about our task. We know what we're to do until he returns. And this task, and we're going to look at it in detail in a moment here, this task is what, what Grace Bible Fellowship should be all about. Now, I want you to finally turn with me to this parallel passage that I've been quoting a few times in Luke. Go to Luke chapter 22, 44. We're going to see more about what this means to be witnesses. We want to fill this in. What does it mean to be a witness for Jesus Christ? What is our commission to the world? We'll look at a number of passages, starting here with Luke 22, 24 and verse 44. Jesus is talking, Then He said to them, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about Me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Notice there verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. Well, what things? Verse 46, that Christ should suffer And that he rose from the dead on the third day. Verse 47, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. That this repentance is for all nations. These things are the things that we are witnesses of. And what they are is really what we call the gospel. The good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. These things are to be proclaimed in his name. And the idea there is that these things are to be proclaimed for him or these things are to be proclaimed by His authority. We're to testify to the world, telling them who Jesus Christ is and what He has done to make us right with God. We're to, And we're going to focus on this message Sunday after Sunday. Every Sunday, in, in almost every sermon, we're going to hear the Gospel from this pulpit because we need to hear this good news again and again as believers. We need to remind ourselves of the Gospel and we need to be equipped to tell others about this Gospel, that Jesus died. That Jesus died not because of His own sin. Jesus had no sin. But, but Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin. And the just penalty for the crime of sin against a holy God, an infinite God, is an infinite punishment in hell. And Jesus bore that punishment for us on the cross. He drank the cup of His own wrath to bring us to Himself. And not only that, Jesus in His earthly life merited a perfect record of human righteousness. You see, to dwell with an infinitely holy God in heaven forever, we needed a perfect righteousness. And because of our sin, this righteousness was impossible for us to earn on our own. But Jesus earned this righteousness in our place. And the way to receive this forgiveness and, and this righteousness is by repentance and faith. On the one hand, God must act in your life. On on the one hand, you must be born again. Man will not turn from sin apart from God's gracious work. And so Jesus says that one must be born again to see the kingdom, or one must be born again to enter into the kingdom. Something must happen to you. Something from outside of yourself must happen to you. But on the other hand, we are all responsible to believe and to come to Christ. We are commanded to repent and believe the gospel. Now, you might not understand how God's sovereignty and our responsibility go together, and that's okay. But we know that God must save, and that when He does, people will come to Christ. That people will trust in Jesus Christ, and people will turn away from sin. And so we must call people to believe on Christ. We call people to come to Him, knowing that God can change their hearts. And by His grace, people will respond. And so we can hold out Jesus to them as the God-Man who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving-kindness. He is meek and humble of heart. He will receive all who call upon His name. And He rejoices to save sinners. He will never cast away one who comes to Him. And we, beloved, we are witnesses of these things. And we have confidence that our message is true And we have help from the Holy Spirit as we go about this work. And we have time while we're here on the earth. And this is our job, this is our task, to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in His name. Now, I want to just fill this out a little bit more, so let's go to another Great Commission passage. And I want you to go this time to Acts chapter 10, one maybe you don't think about very often when you think about the Great Commission. But turn to Acts chapter 10. And here Peter summarizes the Great Commission in his sermon. He's preaching here to a Gentile. He's preaching to Cornelius. <clears throat> and, uh, Acts chapter 10, we're, let's start in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he, comm- he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, verses 42 and 43 are really Peter's summary of the Great Commission. He says, we are witnesses, we are witnesses to Jesus, and Jesus ordered us, Jesus commanded us to preach and to testify, to solemnly testify that he is the judge and that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 26 is another place that we could go to see the, the commission, our, our mandate, our task. This is uh, where Paul is, is commissioned to uh, go to the Gentiles. And in Acts 26, Paul is preaching or testifying to Agrippa, telling him about the day when, when he, when Paul got saved and in acts 26:15 uh Paul's recounting his testimony and and he says and i said who are you lord remember Paul saw that that light from heaven and and uh, the lord appears to him and and Paul asks the lord there who are you lord and the lord said i am jesus whom you are persecuting but rise stand upon your feet for i have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you. Verse 17 there, Jesus tells, says that I'm sending you to the Gentiles. And, And Paul is now being sent as a missionary to the Gentiles, verse 18, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so Paul is sent to Open eyes. Really something that God himself must do. But, but it's going to be through Paul that God is going to open people's eyes. And the purpose of this opening of the eyes is that they may turn from darkness and from Satan's power and, and that they may turn to holiness and to God. And this turning to God involves seeing God for who he really is and a desire to live for him and to worship him for the rest of our life. In Matthew 28, then, we, we could go to the Great Commission passage there, and we see that repenting and believing, these two things that we've seen throughout all of these passages, that repenting and believing means being a disciple of Jesus Christ, being a follower or a learner from Him. And so you could turn there, Matthew chapter 28, Believing there we see isn't just a one-time thing, it's an ongoing lifestyle. True faith continues to believe. And our mission isn't merely to see people forgiven of sin, but really to see people delivered from sin, to see people actually saved from sin, to be turning from sin, from darkness to light. And so our mission is to bring people to Christ such that their relationship with Christ makes them like Christ. And so look at Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are to make disciples. We're to make disciple-making disciples who obey Jesus Christ, who observe all that he commanded. And what I want you to see about this today is that we are all involved in this work. Every single one of us is involved in this disciple making work. Disciples are made in the local church. We, we, as we all serve one another with our spiritual gifts and abilities. And so we serve one another and we bring people to faith through repentance. And now we, we disciple them and teach them to obey what Jesus commanded and we do, and they grow into Christ's likeness as we all minister to one another with our spiritual gifts and abilities. In Ephesians chapter four, and, and I do, I actually do want you to turn there. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians where we kind of see a little bit more how does the, how the church is involved in this disciple making process. In Ephesians four eleven to sixteen, we get a a picture of how this works in the church. In verse seven, it says, "But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift." And so Christ gave us gifts, and one of those gifts, according to verse eleven, you could look at verse eleven there is pastor teachers or shepherd teachers, pastors who teach is kind of the idea of that. And according to verse twelve, these. Pastors who teach, these shepherd teachers, are to equip the saints. And what do they equip the saints for? Well, according to the rest of that verse, they equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so pastor teachers are a gift to the church, and they now equip the church to do the work of the ministry. And this work of the ministry that all of us are involved in continues And really, to summarize verses 13 to 16, this ministry of of the work of service or the work of ministry continues until we're all utterly Christ-like in our doctrine and in our practice. And each of us plays a unique part in this work. Each of us are to use our gifts to build one another up. This is our commission to the world. And so do you see how this works through evangelism, through preaching the gospel and proclaiming the gospel with our friends and relatives? People are added to the church and through teaching, discipleship and one another ministry, these people grow in maturity and Christ likeness. And as we grow together, we become more and more effective for the Lord. And eventually, we'll be at a place where we can send individuals from our congregation to plant new churches. And the mission continues from the Crete to the remotest parts of the earth. And each of us plays a unique part in this work. And through this mission, God is put on display for the world to see, and He is glorified. In other words, the Great Commission is to see Christ build His church through us. And this is why we need to be involved in one another's lives. This is why we need to use our time, talents, resources, and gifts to build one another up and to promote the work of the church. And so let me ask you, beloved, are you giving all that you have to fulfill the Great Commission? Are you sacrificing to build up the church, to pour into one another's lives? Jesus commanded us with His last words to make disciples. This is our work for the King. This is what we are called to do. This is why we are still alive after we're saved. Jesus commanded us with His last words to make disciples. This is our work for the King. And so consider the commission to the world. This is our task as we work for the King. Finally, number five, I want you to consider the coming of the Lord. We're back in Acts, and we're going to look at verses 9 to 11 here, Acts chapter 1. Consider the coming of the Lord. Verse 9, When He said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up. And a cloud took Him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so Jesus gave them this task and then he was lifted up before their very eyes. He was lifted up. He was taken up. He is alive today and seated at the right hand of God. But he has not left us alone. We have the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself is with us until the end of the age even though His physical presence is at the right hand of God. He's been taken up, but we're not to just stand around gazing up into heaven. This Jesus who ascended into heaven will come in the same way as He went into heaven. Jesus Christ will return. He is coming back. And when He returns, He's going to reward those who have served Him faithfully. Jesus will actually reward us for all that we do for Him, or really for all that He does through us. Revelation 22, verse 12 says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense or bringing my reward with me to repay each of you for what he has done. Now, heaven's not going to be about us or about rewards. The greatest reward in heaven is going to be spending eternity worshiping our great God. But still, Scripture motivates us. Scripture motivates us to faithfulness now by promising that there's going to be rewards later. That faithfulness now will be rewarded forever. And one day Christ will examine our work for him. One day when he returns, he will note how we heeded his last words. And he will determine whether we were obedient to his command to make disciples of all nations. He will judge whether we made his first priority our first priority. And He will reward our service. And those rewards will glorify God, even as our work for the King glorifies God now. And so, beloved, the coming of the Lord should motivate us to work for the King. When He returns, that's when our work is done. Until then, there's much to do. And so consider these five things, and I want you to consider alongside of it your own life. Do these things correspond? Does your life correspond with these five things? Does your life show that you believe these things? Do you believe the certainty of the message that Christ rose from the grave and is alive today? Does this belief give you confidence in all that you do for the King? Have you considered the command to wait that we can do nothing except by the power of the Holy Spirit? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit of God lives within you? Do you believe that He is your help as you work for the King? Are you convinced about the chronology of the kingdom that now is the time to work for the King? Have you considered the commission to the world that we are here to participate with God in the great work of redemption, that our command is to work with Christ as He builds His church? Are you giving your all for the King? Are you laying up for yourself treasure in heaven by using your time, talents, resources, and gifts for the King? To build up the church. Do you believe in the coming of the Lord? Do you believe that he will come again. On the clouds of heaven. Just as he went into heaven. And that that could happen at any moment. Any time. Soon we will be with the king. But until then let us work for the king. That he might be glorified. This is our first priority. This is our mission. This is what we will do together. As Grace Bible Fellowship. For the honor of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to conclude by praying for your help in all this. We want to ask you to help us to consider these things well and to orient our lives around this mission that you've given us. Thank you that you have given us something to do for you in our time in this world. And we pray that you would help us. We pray that the Spirit would powerfully work through us and that You would aid us to proclaim the Gospel not only to the world, the lost, unbelievers, and that we would see them saved, but also that we ourselves would grow as disciples of Jesus Christ, that this would be a church that truly glorifies You, and that You can say say to us, well done, Grace Bible Fellowship. We pray that You would keep us faithful to this task. In Jesus' name, Amen.